Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 59, Ragnarok, all over again. Hey everybody, welcome back. Um, alas, the subtitle for this episode is Unfortunately Fitting. Uh, I just listened to the record one. I just went to listen to my recording to do the editing. I realized I used the entirely wrong microphone and it sounded really, really bad. So I dumped the audio and I've started over. So no doubt this time around it is much better. Okay, so let's do the news, as always. First up, the Defeat of God challenge deck for Magic the Gathering is now available. I found it extremely hard. It's a, I think it's a little too hard for somebody that is uh, not going to spend a lot of time deck building. I don't think I'm going to get to do that, so so yeah, so I was a little bit disappointed with that one. I found the other challenge decks more approachable. Other people seem to really like it, so I think it probably is good. It's just, it's not working out for me. Anyway, it is available, so check it out. I don't know if they're going to be making any more challenge decks. I get the impression they did these three for this this arc of expansions, and they have not, at least, I haven't heard anything else about another one coming up or not, and we shall see. I do hope so. Uh, number two, the print and player, the print and play solitaire design contest is underway. It, uh, sort of snuck upon me this year. But check it out, there's a, a lot of games being submitted, and, you know, you could participate by entering a game, or helping some of the designers with input, or testing, or just playing games and voting on them. This coming Saturday, Saturday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm going to have a discussion about the contest with Chris Hansen and Todd Sanders. It's going to be a Google Hangout discussion, so there will be video. You can actually watch us talking, I guess, or maybe our avatars, depending on each person's preference. You could uh, listen in and watch. You could ask questions via like text messages, and I'm sure we'll be happy to answer them. So again, it is this Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern. I will publish it as a as a podcast episode after, so if you can't listen to it live, well, I guess you could actually always go watch it after the fact too, though. You, it will be on YouTube, but I'll also publish it as an MP3. Um, okay, the game Greenland by Phil Eklund and Philip Carmen is a, will be available probably by Spiel 2014. Uh, this is a this is a game about uh, I believe Aboriginal life in Greenland. You're dealing with weather, extinction of animals, and uh, evolution of religion. It's a typical deep-sounding game from Sierra Madre, so it should be pretty interesting. Uh, number four, number five, Hostage Negotiator. I think four. Number four, Hostage Negotiator by AJ Porfirio will finally be going live on Kickstarter around July 15th. Um, this, this game is a small, compact game based around uh, rescuing a group of hostages captured by some sort of criminal, um, a crazed madman, or maybe otherwise. It depends on the scenario you're playing, I guess, or which villain you're playing against. Um, but you're trying to rescue these hostages by talking out down the uh, hostage taker. It's a great little game. I was lucky that I got to play test it early on. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to play test anymore lately. But uh, you know, if it was anything like what I was playing before, it's fantastic, and I cannot wait for it to be on Kickstarter. Number five, Progress Evolution of Technology is currently on Kickstarter. 
It ends June 24th, so it's relatively soon. I think you got a week and a half or so. It looks an awful lot like Seven Wonders. I believe it plays similar to Seven Wonders in that it's a card drafting game. Um, but I haven't really looked into it more than that. It does support solitaire play, definitely. I believe one through four, one through seven play or something like that. Number six, Crossmaster Quest was mentioned by the designers of Crossmaster Arena. I don't know that this will work solo or not, but it is a cooperative adventure game. And you get to play using all those Crossmaster figures. If it is playable solo, that would be great. If not, well, sorry I mentioned it. Okay. Now two, well, one more coming up item. Okay. I've got another coming up item. The, uh, I will be on vacation soon for a couple weeks, which means my next, well, the next show, as I already said, will be the, the Google Hangouts discussion. After that, it'll be quite a few weeks before the next show. Hopefully not four weeks, but we shall see. I make no promises one way or the other. So, you know, expect it late June. I mean, July. Did I say June? I mean, July. And the final thing, you know, I totally forgot to mention it with May being so crazy for me. I forgot to bring it up on the last podcast, maybe even the podcast before that. But the one player gaming awards were finalized, all the voting was completed, and the results were in. Um, so I did want to share that with you. I'm sorry it has taken so long. Chances are, if you're on the one player guild and you subscribe to it, which you should, you already know about this, but here it goes. Um, for the best solitaire game of 2013, this is the, this is the best game by, by voters for, that came out in the year 2013. The game is The Hunters, German U Boats at War, 1939 to 1943. The best solo variant of 2013. This could be an official or unofficial variant. Something that lets you play a, a game that isn't normally considered a solitary game solo. And it is Running Solo, an Android Netrunner variant. Uh, the best solitary expansion of 2013. You know, I'm sorry. The best solo variant is for unofficial variants. Now we got the best solitary expansion of 2013. This is for an official expansion to a game. And the winner is Robinson Crusoe Adventure on the Cursed Island Voyage of the Beagle, Volume 1. This is a game, well, this is an expansion that takes the game Robinson Crusoe, in which you're stranded on an island, into a campaign game in which you're on the Beagle and, I guess, discovering evolution. I don't know much more about it, but it sure sounds cool. The best multiplayer game played solitaire of 2013. The winner is Cuba Libre. This game actually does bring rules to play solitaire, but now this game does bring rules to play solitaire. But the playing both sides is actually so satisfying that you know it was even able to win that way. And finally, there is the solitaire, the one-player Hall of Fame, and there's uh, I believe seven inductees into it, maybe five. Let me go through the list. First off, I was surprised. I had a honorary nomination, so I made it into the hall, the solitaire hall of fame. The and then voted by users, we have Marco Arnaldo, who was uh, nominated because of all his very fine videos. Um, not all of them, I believe, are specifically about solitaire game, but many, many, many are. The second highest, but very close, was a uh, box of delight, a Ricky two thousand two, believe Ricky Royal. 
He also does a lot of videos and playthroughs of solitaire games. I know these two people have influenced many, many people's buying choices because of the high-quality videos they produce. Now, if I understand correctly, they both were very, very close, and they both beat the next closest person by a landslide. Okay, and then the Hall of Fame for the designer. The the two people entered into the Hall of Fame this year, the two designers entered this year, are Dan Verzen of Dan Verzen Games, has designed quite a few solitaire or solitaire-friendly games, including a field... This includes a uh, Field Commander Napoleon, Field Commander Rommel, uh, the Leader series, Hornet Leader, Thunderbolt Apache Leader, and there's others and others. He's got, um, you know, and quite a few other games that all, the many, many of his games support solitaire play. The second highest number of votes was John H. Butterfield. Uh, very happy to see him also be entered into the Hall of Fame. He designed games such as Ambush and RAF and D-Day at Omaha Beach. Some very, very well-regarded solitaire war games. And he's got others. And then finally, the, the Hall of Fame, the game entered in, two games were entered in the Hall of Fame. These are games that have been around, I believe, for, if I remember correctly, for at least 10 years and support solitaire play. And the winners are Ambush, designed by John H. Butterfield, which I just mentioned, and B-17, Queen of the Skies. Both uh, very neat solitaire games, very different, and I think very innovative for their time. So congratulations to all the winners. Okay, now let's pause here. Stop. Today's game is Asgard's Chosen. This is a game. This is a game published by uh, Mayfair Games and designed by Morgan Dantonville. It was released in 2013, late 2013, I think. This game is interesting. It is a, this is an area control deck building kind of game, which is pretty unusual. Um, <clears throat> it's a hard to describe game. And, uh, you know, the first time I recorded this show, I, I tried to give you more idea of how the gameplay works in detail. And I find that really hard to do. Sometimes I find it really hard to explain some games. And this one, this is one I found very challenging. So I think I will not go into as much detail this time around. Um, it is a, Game about Norse mythology, in case the uh, title hasn't given it away. You're playing uh, Norse heroes traveling in in the lands, uh, wrangling up different monsters or creatures to get them to help, to get them to fight for you or help you. So as I said, this game is area control. Um, to that effect, there is a board that you're going to build when you play, made up of tiles. The tiles have two land trains on it. It's basically like a rectangle. And it's divided in half, and each half is a different terrain. Then there's also, at the top of the tile, there's a semicircle, or a circle, which is a, an enchanted land. And then you're going to put all these tiles together like a puzzle, and there's also going to be, because all the, there's semicircle notches cut out of the corners, and in the middle of the tiles, or the edges of the tile, you're also going to have spaces where you could put town tokens. And so now when you, you've built this map, you've got, Land you could visit, enchanted lands, and towns. And you could travel to or through any of these. The the lands and the towns are the areas you're going to try and control in this game. The enchanted lands are places you could visit or travel through to get different bonuses. Now, because the board is modular, there's different ways you could set it up when you play. There's a recommended starting setup. 
But after that, you could try different setups if you want to. Now, I also mentioned it's a deck building game. So, unsurprisingly, it brings a lot of cards. This is the, not the Dominion style of deck building where you're, where you've got 10 random decks you started with and that's what you're going to get to play. It's more like the, uh, Ascension type of deck building game in which you're buying from a pool of cards and when you buy a card, you replace it from the deck. So the deck, ha- there's actually two decks. You're going to go through the starter deck and when you finish, like I'm calling the starter deck, it isn't called the starter deck, but you're going to go through the first deck when you finish that one. Then you go through the second deck, which has stronger creatures. And they're basically the same as the creatures in the first deck, but with higher values and higher costs. So the creature deck actually has more than just creatures, but it is called the creature deck. It's got the creatures, which generally speaking, they're going to have a power, uh, a terrain bonus, and a, um, a terrain type. An opposing terrain, a cost, and a ab- terrain ability. Um, hopefully I got all the terms right, but maybe not. The The first number, the, tra- the creature's power, is how good he attacks and fights other creatures when you're fighting. The number could also be his purchasing power when you're using him to buy other cards. I mentioned it, the, the creatures all have a terrain bonus, in, which is right next to that terrain, the creature's power. It's a, basically a plus one or a plus two. Um, I mentioned the land tiles already, or is divided into two, ter- two terrains in, for each tile, or two lands. There's different colors, or you could say different types, I guess. There's a, for example, gray is mountains. There's a green, which is forest, or maybe bogs. There's a different shade of green. Uh, there's marsh. Um, there's, I, think, I think there's five or six different colors total. Each creature is aligned with one of the terrains, one of these lands. If, you know, maybe I shouldn't get into too much detail now, but when you're fighting with the creatures, if you're attacking from a land or into a land of a matching color, you're going to get that bonus added onto your, your total power for your attack or defense. Um, there is the terrain color I just mentioned. There's an opposing color. Uh, each terrain has an opposite terrain, and basically that creature can't be used in conjunction with those trains. It doesn't get the, it cannot be used when you're attacking a terrain of that color. And also I mentioned the, the, the creature's power is his buying, also his buying power. You can't use a creature to buy a creature of an opposing color. Shh! Kaylee, chai chai. Okay. Um, I mentioned the creatures have a cost. It's generally two or three times of the creature's power. It d- depends on the creatures. And I mentioned they have abilities. The creature, when you're attacking from a terrain or into a terrain of his color, you get his terrain ability also. You get to use it. And, you know, they're, they, they tend to be pretty standard. They let you, uh, they let you do things like maybe ignore their terrain ability for other cards. They might give you some extra cards or that sort of thing. Um, so that I mentioned other creatures. There's items. There's also items and events in the deck. The, there's a couple different types of items. There's regular town items and enchanted items. The town items you could get if you control enchant- towns. The enchanted items you could get if you're on an enchanted land. They 
gave you different bonuses that you could use when you're fighting or other stuff. It depends on the card and the card text. Um, there's event cards. They're, in the Solitaire game, they're used two different ways. They could either be used as an event, which is generally stuff like... They, they're, uh, the events could be things like every player gets to buy an extra card or maybe gets a free card or every player loses control of one terrain. Um, I found the events are generally good, but some are bad. There are some bad ones, definitely. In the Solitaire game, they're also used in an interesting way, which is to trigger you getting attacked by the virtual enemy. I probably won't get into too much detail about how that works, just you know, so you know the card has multi-purposes. Okay, um, I've kind of given you an overview of the main components of the game. There's also your deck that you start with, which is basically 10 god cards and a couple other cards from the deck. The uh, the god cards are basically... Okay, we're talking in your typical deck-building fashion. These are your your low-value type coin cards. They're all worth one... They all have one power, which means when you're attacking with them or defending, they're worth one point. All the weakest creatures have one point, plus their bonus if you're in the right terrain. Um, but they also have other abilities and are actually very critical to this game. To win the game, you have to get you have to get rid of seven of your god cards. Um, so actually, in this game, your goal is what you strive to do in every solitaire game, which is thin out your deck and get rid of the. Did I say that right? So your goal in this game is is pretty much your goal in every single deck building game, which is to thin out your deck of all the weakest cards. Um, these god cards have two abilities. They have their power, which I mentioned, and they have two abilities. One is a, a favor that the god could grant you. You could get one favor from one of your god cards each turn. And an appease um, cost, I guess. There'll be a text telling you, you could appease this god if you do such and such. And if you've done that thing, you get that card out of your deck. And that's one card towards your goal of seven. The kind of things you have to do might be uh, control a certain number of terrain, a certain type of terrain, win some battles, or maybe sacrifice some of your cards from your deck or your hand. There's ten god cards, and they each are a different god from Norse mythology, and they tend to have powers and grant favors that are related to, to that god in the mythology. For example, the Thor card will give you bonuses for combat. Okay, so that is pretty much the main components of the game. There's a few other things. I'm kind of going to gloss over those. The The way the game works, it's divided into four parts. There's first a... It's a little confusing. Huh? Okay. The first phase is the god phase, in which you could play a god card for its favor. You don't necessarily get the favor at that point. You may get it later on, but you have to play it at the beginning of the turn. So you have to make that choice of which god card you want to play. Um, other cards you might be able to use during this phase, too. It, every card will have a symbol next to its different abilities, notifying you in which of the four phases you could use. At first, it was a little bit confusing to f- understand that, but as you play it, it becomes pretty darn intuitive and, and very usable. So that's the first phase. This is the god phase. The second phase is a charm phase, and there's very, very few cards that have charm ability, and you can play those cards at that turn. Um, it tends to be a very minor phase, I think. The third phase is a campaign phase. Now, I didn't mention it before, but you have meeples. You have a male meeple and a female meeple, and at this point, you could have your meeples move around the map and try and basically take more territory, which is critical to winning this game because many of the uh, gods are appeased by controlling lands. 
Um, so the way you move your characters is your character is on a region which you've got a little control mark on it, so you control that land. You could move that character as far as you want, as long as you're staying on land you control, up until a point where you move beyond a land you control, and at that point you're attacking there from whichever was that last land the character was in. Um, th there's also the enchanted land, you never control those. So if you're moving your character through your land, you can move it through an enchanted land, or you could stop at the enchanted land. Um, if you move it through it, you can move it onto another area you control and then keep going, or you could move it to into an area you don't control and then be attacking into that area from the enchanted land. So the campaign phase, this is really the biggest phase of the game. You're going to move your heroes around and probably attack a terrain. Um, at that point, you're going to draw cards from the deck for the opponent. You're going to then play cards from your hand for yourself. There's a few phases to this, but generally speaking, either you're going to win because you have a higher total power than your opponent, or you're going to lose because you don't have a higher total power. If you don't win, you basically just retreat back to the last land your hero was in. If you do win, you get to put a control marker on that, and if that space was controlled by the AI, you take his control marker off. Um, you get to do this twice each turn, once with each hero. And I mentioned the event cards could get you to be attacked. As you're, as you're fighting a combat, you're going to draw cards from the deck for your opponent. Or even if it's uncontrolled, you still draw cards to see how strongly defended that land is just by the wild beasts. If you draw an event card at this point, it signifies that you're also going to be getting attacked after you resolve this combat. So you resolve the combat, and then you have another combat in which you may end up losing control markers. That's a pretty general overview of the campaign phase. The next phase is the muster phase, in which you're basically buying cards from the uh, tableau that you've laid out. And I mentioned before, there's a tableau of eight cards. There are two rows of four. When you buy cards, you could only buy cards creatures whose uh, creature color matches a terrain you control. And it's got to be from the bottom row. Um, items, if there are items, for example, if it's a town item, you have to control a town. Or if it's an enchanted item, you also have to control enchanted land. Which specific land you control doesn't matter as long as it's the right type. Um, you cannot buy cards from the second row unless you not only control the land, but have a hero on that type of terrain. In that case, you could choose to buy a card from the top. You're going to buy a card, paint its cost using cards from your hand, and then you're going to slide the top row card down to fill the gap if you bought from the bottom row, and then add a new card to the top row. If it's an event card, that event happens right away, and then you draw yet another card to replace the hole that's still there. Finally, you discard and draw back up to seven. Now, this game is interesting because you don't have to discard. It's uh, That's, I think, pretty unusual to a deck-building game. You have a choice of whether you want to keep some of the cards or all the cards in your hand. And, of course, that's going to affect how many cards you get to draw because you've got a hand size of seven. Um, I found that very interesting because it adds a, it adds a nice hand management to, to deck-building games that I have not seen before. So, so that's generally the game. There's a few things here and there. I didn't mention some that are going to just impact the way the combat works or the way the solitaire game is handled. It is a very interesting game. I, I really liked it. I like the area control. I like the deck building. The two work really well together, I think. I like the the way you're buying from the tableau. I like the hand management. I, I love the theme. I think the, the theme really works really nicely in this game. 
So that being said, I do also find the game, um, maybe frustrating, maybe not, that's not quite the right word, but I found it challenging. Learning the game was not easy. This is a, it's more complex than your typical Euro, but not as complex as your typical war game. Um, and I think that's a pretty, pretty good, uh, indication of how difficult it is to learn this game. The, uh, I mean, for example, when you first open the rule book inside the first page, the first words you read are something like, there is a certain number of verbs that are important in this game, and here's the verbs and what they mean. There's also some nouns that are important in the game. Here's what they are and what they mean. So right off the bat, you start with having to, to learn these definitions and then start reading the rules. And these are basically cases where, I, I guess, they, they use special terms to describe the gameplay instead of... Uh, for example, say you you buy a card from the tableau, it says you muster a card. So mustering is a term you got to learn. And, you know, the word will show up in different cards and all that. Not a big deal, but because there's so much to this game already, I think it slows down the learning process a bit. Um, and I think a lot of the terms are not terms I've really come across in other games, like mustering, for example. I don't know of any other game where you're mustering cards. So so it's a challenging game to learn. I've played it six times. I think I've figured it out pretty well at this point. I played multiplayer last week, and I really enjoyed the multiplayer game too, but I found it extremely hard to explain the game to other people, and I think they generally enjoyed the game, but found they were really confused a lot. You know, and I explained a rule to them, and sometimes they they might not believe me or, or, or didn't understand me and wanted to check it up in the rule book because it's just, like I said, it's just, it's different. It's a different game than your typical game that, I mean, it's, it's just a very different game. Um, overall, I think it's a great game. I think it has a lot of replay in it. Yeah. Um, you're setting up the board differently every time you play. If you want to, I never even got to that point. I, I enjoy just using the default board every time. Um, but if you change the layout, it's going to affect what kind of trains you could buy and all that. Um, what you could get to easily. When the game starts, the, your opponent, the virtual guy already controls a bunch of the land, so a lot of stuff is locked up. So depending on how you lay out the map, and that will affect where you can move to and how restricted the game might feel, I think. Um, now, I did accidentally set it up one time using the three-player map, which is actually a much bigger than one- or two-player map. So there was a lot more open space, and I was able to move around a lot, and that still felt satisfying. I didn't feel like I had a crazy advantage. I might have because it was early on and I know the game that well yet, so I probably messed up some rules, but it still worked pretty well for me. Um, I enjoy the creatures and all the different abilities that they have, and there's a lot of opportunities for for creative play of cards and teaming up cards together for for really nice powerful combat or nice powerful effects. For example, the there's the one god card, the one god card Thor I mentioned. He'll give you a plus three bonus for fighting during the com, com, campaign phase, but it says you can only fight with one hero that turn instead of the two that you normally do. Actually, you're only allowed to move one of the heroes. But there's then one item card that I have had a couple times that says I can use the same hero both times that turn. So suddenly, my Thor card that was restricting me to use one hero at a powered up level. Let me use that hero twice at that powered up level, which is really awesome. I think every time that came up, I uh, I just kept having bad combat. The whole combat and, and managing your hand is very challenging because that one hand of seven cards you had, you start with, it sounds like a lot, but you got to use that card for all the combat you do. 
You could easily use two or three or four cards in a combat, sometimes more. And then once you've done all the fighting, comes the time to buy cards and, hey, you've used all your cards for combat, you're not buying any cards this turn. Another really interesting thing is that your draw deck is also the timer for the game. You have to appease seven gods by the time the two decks of cards run out. The The first deck is really big, and the second deck is pretty big, but not huge. I think you probably got like 140 or 150 cards in the two decks. But because of the way the game works, when you go to attack a new terrain, you're going to draw a few cards from the deck to see what you got to do, what's defending against you. You quickly start going through the deck every time you attack a new terrain. So, so yeah, so the deck as a time is a really neat mechanism. Uh, at first you're playing and you feel like you're going to last forever and you got time to set up some strategy and you don't worry about your guard card too much, but then all of a sudden you get through the first big deck and now you get to the second deck and you realize you don't have that much of the game time left. You've at least gone through two-thirds of the game by now and hopefully if you appease a few gods, you're going to be rushing. And, you know, it seems like every time I played, I, I had that moment hit and I had that little bit of a panicky feel, which is pretty fun actually. And then it kind of went through the rest of the game trying to, I felt like I was trying to catch up. Um, trying to catch up to win. There's obviously some nice strategies about how fast you get rid of your god cards, which ones you get rid of versus which ones you keep, because each god card has the favor he's going to grant you, which they're all different types of abilities, and some I find more useful personally than others, and it depends on what strategy I'm using. And getting rid of some of the god cards to appease them is some are easier than others. Um... And sometimes there's overlap where you, the card that you want to keep is also the card you want to get rid of. So there's interesting uh, dynamics with that. Yeah, overall it's a really cool game. Um, I do have to warn you, it is hard to to learn. It's hard to grok this game. It's worth the challenge, I think. And you're going to read the rules and you're not going to understand. You're going to play a few times. You'll definitely get stuff wrong. You know, at least I did. And I can't. What's the matter? Yeah, we're talking about the game now. Did you like it? No comment? Okay. So yeah, that's Asgard's Chosen. It's it's definitely a fun game. It's I don't think it's a very well-known game. It's playable one through four players. Um, you could also play it cooperatively. That's an option. And I think it's a game that has a fair amount of replay value. It's also not very cheap. I believe the retail price was 30 or 40 dollars, $40, I think. Let me double check. The, it retails at uh, 42 dollars. It's actually not too bad for a deck building game. I love the texture of the box. It's, it's not a shiny glossy box. It's got a rougher feel to it. And I don't know, I don't know how else to describe it, but I really like it. There you go, that's Asgard's Chosen. I've hoped you enjoyed listening to me talk about this one. Well, that's the end of today's episode. If you'd like to contact me, you can find me as Fractaloon on BoardGameGeek, or you can email me at oneplayeralbert at gmail.com. You can also post comments on the Podcast Geek list on BoardGameGeek, or come visit the One Player Guild on BoardGameGeek for comments and discussion and whatnot. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected under a Creative Commons license and can be found at gemendo.com. The show is published under Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. Thanks for listening.